thank you, Brother Dinkins, uh, KD, for putting four bottles of water up here. I may need them all. What's Jason going to drink? I don't know. But, uh, no. <laughs> but, uh, well, good morning again, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's truly humbling, and uh, I feel very privileged to be up here. And uh, just bear with me. We'll go through some stuff here, and uh, I'll, I'll try not to uh, make it too long. I apologize if my voice sounds a little nasally. I, since I dri started driving the school bus, I think I've had perpetual colds. Um, so I feel for you teachers, the, the folks who have been in the classrooms, I, every time I turn around, it's like, a, here's another one. But anyway, so um, as you know, I spent a good part of my life in the uh, United States Air Force, uh, originally from Illinois. Got sent down here to Valdosta, Georgia, and Moody Air Force Base, and fortunately I met Kathy, and uh, she turned my life around, and then uh, we were fortunate enough to have Kelly and Wyatt, and uh, they've been truly, truly been a blessing to us. Um, but the Air Force is uh, many organizations, uh, large and small. They have strategic plans. You know, you've got your mission, vision, core values, so on and so forth. And the Air Force's core values are uh, integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all we do. And, uh, you know, that's ingrained day one, basic training, and all through our career. But, uh, other, you know, the lower organizations, subordinate organizations, uh, commanders are allowed to make their own mission and vision, core values that coincide with the Air Force's. Obviously, they can't go out on their own and just do whatever they want, but uh, it has to be something that follows the Air Force vision. And uh, I was, I was uh, in 2012, I was selected to attend a school out at Dallas Air Force Base in Nevada. It's called the Advanced Maintenance Munitions Officer School, uh, short AMOS, A-M-M-O-S. Uh, the school was originally developed just for officers, and um, kind of the O3 level, the captain level, those are guys, those are the the folks at the operational level uh, leading the smaller units. Um, but then we finally had some smart folks that said, hey, we need to send some enlisted folks to this thing. And uh, because the enlisted are what makes the, uh, the world go round, in my opinion, anyway. But, uh, you know, the, the officers, they lay out their vision, and then we carry out the vision of the officers. So we kind of need to know how they're, how they're thinking, how, they're, how they want to operate. Uh, so anyway, I went to this school, and... Like any organization, they've got their own um, core values. Their core values are humble, credible, and approachable. And they expect their officers, and now enlisted, uh, to, to be that. You know, on a daily basis, you know, as a, as a senior NCO enlisted, uh, you're providing advice to your commanders, uh, providing advice to... Uh, people in the same positions, maybe in another unit, and uh, you definitely got your subordinates that need advice. So you have to be humble, credible, and approachable. So where are we going here? Uh, I would argue that Jesus was the epitome of humble, credible, and approachable. I mean, he set the bar. He is the bar. Um, so with that, we'll go through, uh, through a few things here. And... I may, my title of my sermon, Jesus Is, I originally started out with Jesus Was Humble, Credible, Approachable. 
But Jesus is a living God, our God. He's alive in us. And uh, so if I say was, it's Jesus was the man, but Jesus is. Um, so, so if I slip up and say was once in a while, that's why. But uh, before we do that, let's, uh, let's have a prayer. Dear Lord, just uh, help myself and I thank you for this opportunity, Father. And uh, just give me the words to say and let me glorify you through you through your word, Father, and uh, just if this message just touches one person, then it's all worth it, and we thank you so much for everything, Father, and we thank you for this day, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. So anyway, Jesus was humble. Webster's Dictionary defines humble as uh, not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive, reflecting, expressing, or offered in a spirit of deference or submission. Jesus humbled himself and submitted to God's will always. Uh, Some examples. Uh, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Obviously, Jesus did not need to be baptized because he was sinless. However, he submitted to the baptism as public testimony of his obedient spirit and example to the people. Jesus humbled himself in an example of those who would be part of the kingdom of God. Number two, during the Last Supper, he washed the disciples' feet. John thirteen twelve through 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Walking in sandals on the dirt roads led to filthy feet that needed to be washed before communal meals. The job of washing feet was left to the lowliest of servants within a household. When Jesus kneeled before his disciples and began to wash their feet, they had to be shocked that Jesus, their Lord and Master, would perform such a lowly task. But Jesus was modeling how he wanted them to be, humble. Number three, he prayed, he prayed always, but he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed to the Father three times. He prayed that God's will be done, even knowing what was about to happen to him. Matthew twenty six forty two. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what needed to happen to fulfill his mission. He knew and he submitted to God's will. He humbled himself to make a way for us to have eternal life. Next, we're going to discuss credible. How is Jesus credible? How is Jesus credible? Webster defines credible as offering reasonable grounds for being believed, of sufficient capability to be militarily effective. How is Jesus credible? John 1, 1, 1-2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John tells us the word is, is Jesus. He also says that the word was with God in the beginning. Jesus is God, co-equal yet distinct. There at the creation of the world. Jesus is the creator who willingly took on human flesh to become like those he created so he could redeem those who were lost. He is the one who stepped out of eternity into time to rescue those who are bound by time and doomed to be separated from him for eternity. This is proof of Jesus' credibility. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John eleven thirty-eight through 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by, the time there is a bad odor, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Verse 42. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus raised Lazarus, Lazarus, excuse me, Jesus raised Lazarus, to prove that he is the Messiah sent by God, his tongue twister. Uh, he says so in his prayer, verse 42, I said this for the benefit of the people, that they may believe that you sent me, proving once again that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Son of God. Jesus predicted his death many times. Luke 18, 31 through 33. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. We just celebrated Easter. I think that's uh, proof that Jesus does what he says. You know, Christianity is founded on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for that. And finally, Jesus is approachable, was approachable. His humility and credibility is what made him approachable. Uh, We'll go back to Webster's again. Approachable is defined as capable of being approached, accessible, specifically easy to meet or deal with. Uh, There are many people in the world that meet this definition, but sometimes they don't have the best of intentions. Jesus was on the earth for a purpose, to save us. Some more examples. Uh, The Samaritan woman at the well. John 4, 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. They then had a conversation. Ultimately, the woman drank of the well of water springing up in him for eternal life. The Jews and Samaritans had a long history of dislike and hostility. This particular Samaritan woman is portrayed to be a loose woman who has had numerous husbands and is currently living with a man who is not her husband. Jesus did not hold any of these things against her. 
He was open to conversation with her, and she then saw the truth of who he was. It was his approachability that allowed her to recognize his true identity. Number two, babies were brought to him. Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus was available for everyone, even the youngest children. He had to remind his own disciples not to interfere with his approachability. Jesus was open and available to anyone, even those who others may deem as insignificant, the definition of approachable. Jesus drew drew crowds, Mark 2.2. There were so many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. Four men brought a paralytic but could not bring him through the doorway, so they removed the roof and lowered the man down to Jesus. Jesus drew crowds, but he healed those who had faith. Jesus was always available and willing to help those who truly believed and were willing to receive his help. He was approachable. He is approachable. So in closing... I feel we should all strive to be like Jesus, humble, credible, approachable, and I'm sure there's a hundred other words you could use to describe Jesus Christ. Uh, Living this way will make it easier to give our witness to others, show others how a follower of Christ should act and behave. Our mission is to tell others about Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We cannot have an effective witness if we do not remain humble, credible, and approachable like Jesus. Thank you. Yeah, I might go through a couple of them. Um, but, uh, you know, good morning. Um, you know, I'm, as, as Terry said, I'm honored to be able to speak to you this morning. Um, and I want to thank Carrie for allowing me this uh, opportunity and trusting me to stand here today. Um, uh, hope you, I don't disappoint you, Carrie. And, uh, but more importantly, I uh, pray that I do not dishonor God. So <clears throat> on that note, would you pray with me before I begin? Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to stand here today to tell others about you. Please speak through me. Help me to be clear so that you are known, and those who hear me only hear you and not me. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Um, So first, I got to tell you, I don't usually jump at the opportunity to speak in front of a group of people like this. Uh, But when Kerry asked for volunteers, I told him I wanted to do this almost immediately. For a few reasons. Um, first, as a Christian, I think we should always be ready to share what God is doing in our lives. But honestly, for an introvert like me, that has definitely not always been the case. I got the opportunity a few months ago to lead our adult Bible study group in a Bible study, and I received a, a lot of positive feedback about it, and I wanted to share what we talked about that night in a slightly different way and maybe to a bigger audience, which this is definitely a bigger audience. 
Um, I use the parable of the lost son as a, a Bible study and also as a sort of testimony because it was something on my heart at the time. Um, when studying the scripture for adult Bible study and even more preparing this morning, I found so many details about that, the story that I had not noticed before and so many lessons to learn from it. I hope I can go through most of them in the time we have this morning. What brought me to focus on that, on the parable, was early last year, I let some events in the church affect my relationship with the church that ultimately invited a whole host of bad things to happen to my spiritual life. Spiritually, I was in a bad place, but I hid it well, just like most of us always do. When somebody asks, how you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm great. How you doing? I'm good. We do that a lot, but uh, if we're honest... We're, we're all struggling. Um, I could give multiple examples of events that happened to me throughout last year that felt like I was the lost son leaving home, but then coming back home. Um, I believe that the most powerful tool any Christian has to help lead others to Christ or encourage Christians is your own personal testimony. That testimony doesn't always have to be your salvation uh, experience, even though that is very important, you should always be ready to share it. But we are all living—we are all a living testament of what God can do every day. And I believe telling others about what God is currently doing in our in your life is important as your salvation experience. And why is that? Because God never rests working in our lives, and after you're saved, as I'm sure many of you can attest to. We are all a work in progress, and also because Satan is always working against God, and he never rests either. Satan would love nothing better than to see God's children stumble and fall and never get up. So what does the Bible say about Satan? In 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Knowing Satan is always at work, it's important to encourage one another to stay vigilant by coming together and studying God's word and will for our lives and share with one another how God is working in our lives. Comparing Satan or the devil to a lion prowling and hunting is the perfect example of how the devil operates. That's why it's so important, I think, to be a part of a group of believers who can strengthen, strengthen you, pray for you, and support you so you're not easy prey for a lion. And we'll all get, uh, we'll get into that a little later. So first, let's jump into the parable and maybe understand that a little better by the end. The parable of the lost son is in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. But we're only going to focus on 11 through 24 today. So starting in verse 11, it says, He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. Oops, got a little ahead of myself, sorry. Uh, so he distributed, he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country 
where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The parable of the lost son that Jesus taught is used in a lot of sermons, and rightfully so. There are so many things to learn from this scripture, and so many little details that you might miss if you just breeze through it. First, there are several people to focus on, the key characters. The 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 most obvious, the young son, the father, and the older son. This morning, we're just going to focus on the young son son and the father. I found there are several schools of thought about who the young son represents, and there's really no dispute over who the father represents. The young son represent. There's the first uh, thought is the young son represents a lost person. The second one is the young son represents a backslidden Christian. Um, I think, and you'll probably agree with me, one of the most wonderful things about the Word of God is that sometimes some scripture can say different things to different people depending on what God is trying to teach them at the time. So I believe the the parable of the lost son can be about both a lost person and backslidden Christian. But when I read the first verse of this parable, it says, a man had two sons. Um, the, The Bible often refers to Christians as God's children. We are often referred to as adopted and heirs with Christ. This verse, to me, tends to lean toward both sons being a part of a family and the young son being a backslidden Christian. But the idea that behind the son being forgiven later can also lean towards the young son being a lost person. What, the next two, what do the next two verses say? Uh, verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me, a, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. And then uh, verse 13 says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. What the young son did was one of the most arrogant and disrespectful things a son could say and ask of his father, especially being the younger son. 
Here the son was basically saying to the father, you are better off dead to me. Let me have all you've worked for now as if you're dead. We look at something like that and we think some pretty awful things about that son, don't we? So how did the young son end up treating his father this way and wanting to leave his father? From what we know, from what I read, the young son had a good home and a loving father who I'm sure had everything the son would ever need. So what happened? Just guessing, he was He may have been tempted by something his friends were doing, something he saw, something he thought he was missing out on. I shared with adult Bible study group that night how God led me to focus on this parable, and I won't go into all the details here this morning, but what I hope I can tell you is what I learned from it, and you can use it as a warning. A warning not to allow Satan to gain a foothold on you, but if he does, how to return back to the Father. So remember what I read about earlier about Satan prowling like a lion. I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to watch wildlife videos of lions hunting. Does anybody ever watch any of those? Okay. I'm not the only one. A lion is the perfect predator. What do lions do when they hunt? They watch and wait. They prowl and wait for the weak the sick, that one isolated, weaker animal to make the wrong move. This younger son had everything, but I believe somehow he let sin creep into his life. It made him sick, and it isolated him long before he left home. What are some ways we can affect our spiritual health and allow sin to enter into our lives? Here are some ways that my spiritual health was affected during that time last year. And if I'm honest, probably long before then. First, I stopped reading scripture. My Bible study consisted of maybe reading the verse of the day that popped up on my Bible app. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then in Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And second, I stopped listening to Christian music. This may not affect you like it did me, but for me, this was a huge deal. I worship God when I listen to Christian music. And when I am plugged from that... It, uh, it just compounded the situation. I was, I told the story in a, a Bible study. Um, I, I don't know if you listen to uh, Spotify or whatever online music uh, app you might use, but um, I, I listen to Spotify. And Spotify, you can listen to a song and you can tell Spotify, hey, I like this song. Go find me a bunch of other music that I like that sounds like it or it's in the same genre. Um, and when I unplugged from Christian music, I started listening to secular music. And Spotify will create you a, spray, a playlist based on that. Um, and so all my playlists were secular music. And there's nothing exactly wrong with that, but it's, it's secular, it's not Christian. So I had these playlists, and during my time last year, I was struggling with this. Um, 
I remember going home from one night from church and I was listening to the music on the way home, listening to the secular playlist and, and I've listened to it time and time again. There's no Christian music in it. And all of a sudden, uh, a song came on. It was, um, you know, it's a song called Faithful God by I Am They. Um, maybe you've heard it. But it wasn't one of my favorite songs, um, but I've heard it many times. I knew the words well. And it's exactly what I needed to hear at the time. And there is no way God was not involved in that for me. Um, and then the third thing was I distanced myself from church. I think you can distance yourself from church and still walk through those doors. And I was doing that. I was still coming to Pine Hill and I was doing my job, but inside I was not a part of the church. Some people may not, you know, some people may not even be part of a church at all. And I think for those that are not even walking through the doors of a church on a regular basis, this can make things even more difficult. <clears throat> I'm sure there are other ways, but those are some things that affected me. I'm sure the young son had things in his life that affected his relationship with his father, and Satan used, those, used this to tempt him, and, work, and it worked. So let's read what happened next. Uh, verse 14, after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then when he went to work for one of then he went to work for one of those citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. The son had let sin take his full inheritance and blow it all. He ended up in a pig pen. Have you ever been trapped in some sin in your life? He was feeding pigs and longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating. Have you ever found your place? Have you ever found yourself in a place in the wrong place and wondered how you got there and how do you get yourself out? In verse 17, it said, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. When it says he came to his senses, I wonder when it finally hit him. Like I said earlier, last year I let some things happen to me, happened, let some things that happened at church weaken me. It made me angry and sick in my heart, and it isolated me. That helped Satan attack me, and I was spiritually separated from church and God. And there are several examples in my life last year that helped me realize I was trapped and needed to escape, but I wasn't sure how. But what else did the son do in verses 18 and 19? In 18, it says, I'll get up, go to my father, and say, say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Here the son here the son was. He knew he was in the middle of a pig pen, and there was nothing nothing miraculous about that. All he needed was eyes, ears, and a nose. He knew he was in the wrong place, and he decided to go back home and to become one of his father. 
one of his father's hired servants. For me, I prayed and prayed for an answer for God to stop me from feeling like I did. I prayed to God. I prayed for God to stop this feeling of of sin in my life, but nothing seemed to help or seemed to happen until I was finally left with no other options except that I needed to spiritually go home, to really go home. As I was studying this scripture, two actions the son took stood out to me. First, he decided to go back home. Second, he made plans about what he would say and do to justify his actions. I believe the decision to go back home was the most important and the only one that really mattered. But the plans to justify his actions were a waste of time. But don't we always try to do that? Don't we always try to come up with some plan, some process we think we can go through to make things right with God again? And verse 20 says, so he got up, went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. I want you to pay special attention to the father here. Need a shot of testosterone, testosterone from uh, Tyler right now. Uh, every time I get up here to speak and I speak about something close to my heart, it, it causes the uh, tears to flow. So sorry. Um, the father in this parable is usually characterized as the patient father, and if patience was all he had shown here, it would have been more than enough and more than we deserve. But the father is so much more than patient. Some things to notice about the father. The father saw him a long way off. This suggests that the father had to be looking for him in the first place. Would you be looking for someone who wronged you? Would you be looking for someone who spent their inheritance you gave them? What would our human response be to something like that? I think the father was waiting for the son to return home. Second, the father was filled with compassion. What the son did to the father in no way warranted any compassion, yet the father was filled with compassion. Third, the father ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Everything that son did warranted the full condemnation of the father, yet he ran to him, welcomed him back with open arms and kissed him. In Jesus' time, running for a man was undignified and shameful, not to mention to run towards the son who just blew his inheritance. See what happened next. In verse 21, it says, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Oops, sorry. Um, Verse 22, But the father told his servants, Quick, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. 
Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. The son starts to deliver his prepared speech just like he practiced, but before he could even finish, the father doesn't even hear him or maybe just ignores him and orders his servants to restore his son to his place as if he never left. So what, what are the lessons to learn here from these final verses? For me, <clears throat> the lesson is when we really mess up, the father isn't interested in condemning us for what we did wrong. He just wants us to come home. I also believe the father doesn't care about our plans or the steps we're going to take to make things right with him. <clears throat> Sorry. Um. <clears throat> there is nothing we can do on our own to make things right with God other than the decision to restore our relationship with him by coming home. <clears throat> the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become something unclean and our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. I knew I was going to go through all this water. Uh, sorry. There's, <laughs> there's, no, there's no sacrifice we can make to justify our actions. There's nothing we ourselves can do to make up to the Father. All the Father wants us to do is to come back to him, to make the decision to come home. The Father wants a restored relationship with you, and that's it. Once that relationship is restored, everything else will fall into place. So I want to close with this. If you're not in a right, in a right place with the Father, don't wait a second longer. Don't make plans about what you're going to give up. Don't, make, don't prepare speeches. Look where you're at, smell what you're in, and get up out of the pig pen and just come home. I promise you, he is looking a long way off for you. He will run to you, throw his arms around you, kiss you, put a ring on you, and a robe, and tell you, And tell heaven to celebrate your return. Thank you.